Welcome to the Intelligent Investing Podcast, where modern portfolio theory can suck it. A student of the school of Graham and Doddsville and a clergy member of the Church of Warren Buffett, here's your host, Eric Schlein. Hi, this is Eric Schlein. You're listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast, Coronavirus Investing Series. We have Jeremy Raper back on. Jeremy, welcome back to the show. Hey, Eric. How are you going? I'm doing okay. Doing okay. Um, I wanted to... I know you own some Japanese hotel REITs. I have not looked into that space at all. That's a very niche, unique thing to be looking at. So tell us uh, sort of your... If you could maybe go into your sort of big picture macro thesis first on the hotel REITs and then, you know, maybe drill down and talk about a few names. Sure. So I think I, you know, I said in a previous episode that if you are willing to look through whatever happens in 2020 and assume in some post state that we return to at least a more normalized environment where people do get on planes and people do stay in hotels again, then these are the kind of names you should be looking at. And in that vein, the, the things you need to figure out are, and this, this doesn't just go for Japanese hotels, this goes for any kind of hospitality business or airline or, you know, air cap or any kind of um, business travel related that's been hit down 70, 80% due to the coronavirus, you have to figure out one, are they going to survive? Or more accurately, is the equity that you're buying today going to survive? Are they adequately capitalized to survive, say, a one year or even maybe slightly longer period of extreme dislocation? And then two, what losses are they taking along the way? Capitalize that. And then three, what does that post, post, uh, post-corona world look like? And on that basis, you try and value the entity. So that's kind of the perspective I take on all these things, not just the Japanese hotel REITs. Now, Japanese hotel REITs um, fall within a broader subsector, which is the, the Japanese REITs, which, you know, it's very similar to a U.S. listed REIT, right? So for anyone who's not familiar, REITs are real estate investment trust. They essentially own a bunch of real estate. These ones happen to be mostly hotels, but they could be commercial real estate. They could be residential. Um, they could be timeshares. Uh, and they're a REIT because they have to pay out 90% of their income as dividends. So they're essentially yield plays, dividend plays, most often owned by yield-hungry investors. Uh, and, and you know, that's that's kind of the, the market segment that, that, that they're in. So I guess at a, at a very broad level, beyond corona, so why do I like the Japanese hotels in particular? So... Look, Japan has been under-hoteled for quite a long time. So before Abenomics, it was well known there was a shortage of not just high-end hotel real estate, but basically there was just a shortage of Japanese hotelier accommodation. Um, And that's been rectified somewhat in the lead-up to the Olympics. But compared to the the, uh, pre-corona rate of growth in uh, visitation that Japan has been uh, enjoying as as a tourist destination, um, the hotel fleet is still pretty tight, right? So, essentially, the the supply demand of new hotels has been you know it's been coming on pretty strong in the last few years, but it's still a very attractive market for hotel development. So that's point one. Point two is more um, more recent, and that is if we think about how this Corona shock has unfolded. Obviously, it first occurred in China and then branched out to East Asia and then made its way to Europe and then finally the United States. So China already has this thing beat or effectively beat. So you would expect logically that hospitality-related businesses in China will be the first to bounce. Japan, I'm not sure they have it beat. That's probably the wrong word, but they definitely didn't have any kind of outbreak to the extent that they had in you know the rest of the you know Italy or Europe or the US is seeing. 
Um, and East Asia as a whole has done very, very well. And the reason they've done very, very well comparatively is because of the experience with SARS. So they're much better prepared for some kind of pandemic outbreak. So the reason this is important is because the vast majority of visitors to Japan do not come from the US. They come from Asia, particularly China and Korea. So because you had the incidence of the virus or at least the outbreak of the virus first in those two countries, in particular China and Korea, because they've already brought those under control, it stands to reason that those citizens will normalize faster as well, right? So I do like, first of all, I, I like the valuations I'm buying these in general, but I particularly like them in the sense that I think they could bounce back a little bit faster than the market anticipates because you have 50, 60% of your occupancy generally comes from Chinese and Korean tourists for, these, for, these, uh, for, for a lot of these hotels. And what kind so of valuations kind of, are you seeing on these? Okay, so so I, I'm looking at two names in particular. One is called uh, Japan Hotel. What's it actually called? The ticker is 8985. I think it's just called Japan Hotel Investment Corporation or something like that. But it's a what a, what know, a creative a, name. <laughs> yeah, they don't they don't um, <laughs> they don't do the best in the marketing department. But at least the hotels themselves have more catchy names. Yeah. But, you know, this is a Tokyo. Um, there's a few others in Osaka and other major cities, but they're pretty well distributed. So it's basically a bet on tourist activity in Japan. Um, and then the other one I like is 8963. That's called Invincible Investment Corporation. So that's that's a more interesting name for you there, Eric. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and that one is a slightly smaller entity in terms of the number of properties. I think they have under 50, around about 50 hotels. And they also have some resi. They have maybe 10 10-ish resi residential buildings as well. And they have a couple of hotels in the Cayman Islands as well that are probably about 15% of NAV. So both these names trade, you know, at a fraction of NAV, well under half of NAV. I think maybe even one of them trades at 35% of NAV. So what is NAV? So NAV is a simply net asset value, which is the, the most recent appraised value of the entire portfolio, which is what? Well, these most most hotels, just like most real estate investments, are, ba- are valued on a cap rate basis. In other words, the uh, the yield if you take net operating income, um, which is essentially a kind of property level earnings metric for for, for a real estate investment, um, and um, and divide it. Uh, sorry, sorry. You take so if you take uh, you take net operating income for the divided hotel divided by the price. Um, Exactly, and divided by the price of the hotel. Sorry about that. It's basically um, the PE ratio for real estate. <laughs> yes, if you make the inverse, it's the PE, right? Yeah, so, yeah. so these things were trading at cap rates. It's, it's, well the, under 5%. it's the earnings yield of the real estate market. Exactly, exactly. Um, okay, so these things were trading at you know cap rates of well under five percent. Call it four, four and a half percent. So essentially, let's just just say twenty times earnings, right? Yeah. Um, and the reason they were so high is because they pay out almost all of that in divs. So, you know, investors are looking at a four, four and a half percent yield, call it a four percent yield. Uh, and that number had been going up every year because RevPAR had been going up consistently since Arbonomics. So call it for seven, eight years. And there'd been some increase in the, uh, in the portfolio as well. So assets were increasing. Um, asset intensity was increasing. I guess say earnings intensity was increasing. So these were, you know, uh, yield stories, but with a bit of growth on top as well. So they, you know, were valued pretty highly. These things both traded close to two times NAV. One was slightly under two times NAV. I think one was over two times NAV. And they've, so they've, they're both down 75, 80%. So they've basically gone from trading at two times NAV to under half of NAV in a month. 
So the, the obvious question is, you know, why? I, I guess, you know, the elephant in the room is the debt, right? So, so one, I guess this is the third reason why I really like the Japanese hotels as opposed to some of the, uh, the, the U.S. hotels or the U.S. REITs. And that is the best thing about investing in Japanese securities is debt is extremely cheap. Not only is it cheap, but uh, it tends to be it tends to be kind of like a safety net when when things really go wrong. So so in a situation like this, the number one risk you have if you own something like Park Hotels or not not the asset like franchise or models in the U.S. but I don't know some of the U.S. hotel REITs is that they bust covenants and then the banks own your hotels. Your equity gets wiped out. Now I actually don't think busting covenants in this scenario is going to be a huge problem because banks most banks are going to waive covenants or renegotiate covenants i don't actually think many people want to wipe i don't this is one of the few cases where i don't think banks are going to go for the jugular and wipe out every business where they bust covenants because if they did that they'd end up owning half the economy right nevertheless i don't really want to take that risk right so in japan first of all the interest rate is extremely low so both these companies pay under one percent for their debt so both of them are about 45, 50% LTV. So the appraised value of the properties, they borrow up to half of that, for, let's call it 45% of it on average. And that is generally termed out, meaning the debt is quite long-term or you know very staggered long-term maturity. But most importantly, the cost to carry that debt is very low relative to, to other countries because you know Japanese interest rates are extremely low and these are perceived as high-quality assets. Now... Not only that, but the the covenants around those um, around those loans are pretty generous. So, look, we're going to have a scenario where in 2020, or at least the first half of 2020, you know, revenues are going to fall to zero. These, these both these companies are going to generate operating losses, um, but I don't think they're actually going to trip covenants um, because, from what I can see, I don't actually think there are debt service coverage or fixed interest coverage covenants that are explicitly labeled i think they're all on on a nav basis and i actually don't think nav is going to get marked down that aggressively because nav is really only measured on an annual basis and i don't think the the appraisers are going to whack these things that aggressively for one bad year which is obviously kind of exogenous especially when the olympics have been rescheduled to 2021 right so in you know the japanese fiscal year ends in end of march um and so the appraisal probably get done you know end of march 20 you know end of march they're going to down get done around now and then they'll get done again in march 2021 or you know early 2021 so by then of course they will have taken the pain of 2020 but they'll also have the boom the back end boom of the olympics still to come so i think it's reasonable to suggest that even if nav does get whacked that it doesn't get whacked to the extent that these banks you know try and take the keys from the equity owners yeah and markets tend to be forward looking as well yeah, exactly. So, so I, I'm of the view that you could actually see one of two things happen. One, obviously, the first half of 2020 is going to be a disaster. But you could see Chinese and Korean travel patterns start to emerge before the rest of the world. I think that's highly possible. So you could see a tentative recovery second half of 2020, which sets 2021 up as, again, the Olympics, a normalization year with an Olympics boost. So actually an above normal year. Um so you could actually see the numbers surprise to the upside in 2021, or maybe that's a bit too optimistic, but at least say the second half of 2021, such that NAV doesn't really get hurt at all. And all of a sudden, we look out to, say, 2021 back end, 2022, these things are perceived once again as yield vehicles, right? Rates are still zero. They're still borrowing at near zero. 
and these things go straight back above nav again. Maybe they don't go back to two times nav. Maybe that was ridiculous. But why couldn't they trade it, you know, the premium to nav that they garnered historically? Uh, because they're viewed as yield plays, right? So so if they're yielding 5%, they trade a premium to nav. So, you know, they maybe they yield 4% instead of 3%, which is where they were, right? So, so they, right. you know, a 4% yield, if it's a 5% cap rate, means it's 1.25 times nav, 1.3 times nav. Yeah, but I'm buying them today at spot four, spot three, five times now, spot four times now. So all and then I really need to do is work out, okay, how much cash are they actually going to burn between here and there? And, how, you know, so that's obviously on an EV basis, that's going to increase my purchase price, essentially. Um, and yeah, they're going to burn some cash this, this year. They're going to burn a decent amount of cash, both of these, but I, I don't think they're going to burn enough cash to make this an unattractive proposition, presuming... We do see some normalization even in late 2021. Yeah, and since I'm very confident that the banks aren't going to take the keys away from from the current equity owners, um, that's a, that's a bet I'm worth taking. The, the the other way to look at it is what level would RevPAR and or ADR have to fall to to justify current prices? In other words, what income back into the income required to see NAV fall by 65 percent? And it's essentially taking these businesses all the way back to pre-arbonomics levels, so close enough to pre-arbonomics levels, which seems that's ridiculous crazy, to me. Yeah, that's insane. I mean, that, that may happen. That may happen temporarily, right? Because obviously coming through this, they'll have to cut rates aggressively to, to get people but to not, travel not again. But not on a normalized basis. Yeah, not on a normalized basis. Absolutely. Yeah. So, huh. look, yeah, they have a bit of leverage on these businesses that scares people, but they, the difference is the, the type of leverage they have, the structure of the leverage, the fact that it's Japan. Um, and, um, and, and the leeway that the Japanese banks typically grant you and the lack of aggressive covenants, as I mentioned, it's quite different to say, uh, you know, a, a U.S. listed REIT, which is typically much stricter. Yeah. I mean, we, so we've, I do we've, like, we've talked about, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, I was just going to say it, to me, it's a much more attractive proposition, both geographically and then the financial structure than betting in some of, uh, some of the U.S. names. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. We've talked about this theme before, how there are so many names right now and plenty that we haven't even talked about that are trading like this is going to be the new normal, which to me is crazy, right? It's like if it doesn't go to zero, um, you end up making a really, really good rate of return from, from current levels, which just kind of is mind-blowing to me. Yeah, I mean, it's it's going across across the cap structure as well. It's not just stocks, right? It's, right, right, yeah. No, every, know, everything. Um, like, like Harvard Harvard University municipal bonds. <laughs> I saw right? that. As, <laughs> yeah. as bulletproof as it gets. They were trading at 50 basis point three weeks ago. Now they trade at 3.5%, right? Look, that's not juicy enough to be interesting to someone like me or probably you. Yeah. But it's just the absolute inability to hold anything that is perceived as risky. Right, sure. But I will uh, say on the... On, on the flip side, though, if you're if you're buying munis and that's kind of or or any kind of bonds, typically, at least most most large institutions, they're not necessarily doing it for the yield, but they're doing it where they think interest rates will go or where they you know where they think things sure. rents will blow out or you know whatever. So well, sure, but on a, on a, I guess the the right way to do it then is munis versus treasuries, sure. right? That spread for that bond used to be negative. In other words, people you would rather own the Harvard bond than the than the U.S. Treasury because it's a tax-efficient bond, right? Yeah, it's tax-efficient and the perceived creditworthiness is better than the U.S. government. So that used to be a negative spread, and now it's at 400 basis points or whatever it is, right? So it's a massive dislocation. 
So I hear you. People aren't necessarily looking at it, say, you know, ah, uh, you know, uh, it's it's great. It was at one percent now. It's at four percent yield, but there so, used to be a market for that bond, and there will be again once people put their pants back on. Yeah. So it's a weird. It's a weird time. It's a really weird time. Yeah, I mean, there's these hotel REITs. There's there's so many things that I've been looking at that unfortunately there's only so many hours in the day and only so many dollars you can invest, right? So it's, yeah. it's like drinking from a fire hose at the moment. But yes, that's the environment we're in. It's almost interesting where I think the problem that many of us are having is you find something cheap, but before you buy it, well, there's something cheaper that's even a better idea. That's right. That's right. <laughs> The diff- I actually find that's a little harder to do than when you have to be super disciplined to, you know, find one or two things a year. Well, yeah, you have to, you can't just rush in something that looks super compelling, rush in with all your capital, because then, as you said, there might be something cheaper or might get cheaper the next day or it might get cheap. Look at Aircat, right? So <laughs> a mistake that I obviously made, um, you know, I bought a bunch of Aircat at 40 when, as you said, you know, it went to 23 days later. So, so the, pro- <laughs> the problem with these things, though, is you, you can't, I, I I do take issue with one of the things you said, which is you do need to be careful about just rushing in with all your capital when you find just an idea that's interesting if you haven't turned over a bunch of other stones yet. But mm. I think to hold on to capital because you think something might get cheaper in the future, as I said earlier, markets are forward-looking. So you know yep. everyone knows about the coronavirus. Everyone knows it's going to get worse before it gets better. Everyone already knows that. So... You know, if if people just traded markets based off what everyone already knows, we would all be billionaires. And uh, people mm. tend to not have very good uh, track records if they're uh, trading on what people already know. I mean, even look at a guy. So I, you know, I just did an interview with um, Gregory Zuckerman, who wrote mm-hmm. um, "The Man Who Solved the Market: uh, How Jim mm-hmm. Simons Launched the Quant Revolution." And you know you could say Jim Simons might be the uh, is the best quant investor ever in history, and you mm. know his track record's incredible. Well, he's built his track record with all this technology, all this mathematics, but he's only right like fifty point four percent of the time, right? You know something crazy, yeah. crazy low, but still high enough to make a ton of money. So if you don't have all that technology and mathematicians working for you and all this proprietary data for you to think that you're going to have some kind of edge because you're going to hold a bunch of cash because you think things are going to get worse, even though everyone else also thinks everything's going to get worse. I don't think that's a that's going to be a winning strategy. So I, I actually go more of the what Warren Buffett would say, right? Is that if something is a good value now, then that's all you really should should care about, and then just you know forget about it. Yeah, I think I think that's look. There's merit to both approaches, right? I mean, didn't um, on the one hand, like you said, on the one hand, you have the George Soros's who say you know, when you're right, when you know you're right, you go for the jugular, right? You don't leave half your capital on the sidelines. Yeah. You, you bet it all to win big. On the other hand, um, you have the, you know, the Klarmans of the world who say you need both the humility to know when you're wrong and the arrogance to know when you're right. And you need both of those things in equal measure at different times to be to be a, a good investor. So yeah. it's a balancing The, dif- act. the difference, though, with, with yeah, Klarman, though, is that you know, he doesn't really hold as much cash as it looks like because a lot of the things he owns, you know, are not publicly listed securities. So this this idea that he's always holding like, yeah. you know, 15, 20% cash when he might have a bunch of real estate in his portfolio is it's a little disingenuous. Well, it's not him being disingenuous. It's just that's how people take it, but it's not true. 
I do. I do agree. It's very difficult in practice to hold huge amounts of cash unless you have permanent capital, right? So, so the, the Warren Buffetts of the world have the luxury of having a huge amount of cash. Yeah, but he know, also has a huge amount of long- cash because he can't deploy. He can't deploy it all. I mean, if if Berkshire was you know a hundred million dollar market cap, I don't think he would have a huge amount of cash. It's a good point. It's a good point. Yeah. He just can't deploy it all, and so he's forced to hold the cash, and he therefore says, "I have it as a safety." Yeah, think about it. If you had just, if you had one hundred twenty yeah. billion dollars, or say a hundred billion dollars, right? And he needs the twenty billion for insurance. Let's just say you have a hundred billion dollars lying around. Really, that's an awesome problem to have. I wish I had a hundred billion dollars just lying around. But you mm-hmm. know, for us poor muggles who 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 can't uh, uh, have a hundred billion dollars, you know, uh, around, um, we can dream about it. But think about it, right? It, like. You have a hundred billion dollars. You can't buy Gan. You can't buy Aircap. You can't buy. You know, I don't think you could buy most of those Japanese hotel REITs. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But like, there's not a lot that we've talked about that you could buy. That's right. You can buy Apple. You can buy Apple, right? Yeah, sure. You, you can buy a small, a small piece of Apple, and that's it. You could take well, a small well, I, bite out of the Apple. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, that's a good point. So I hadn't thought about it yeah. too hard that way, but yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, interesting times for sure. Yeah. All right, man. Well, I'm going to let you go, but uh, it was great to have you on and always an interesting uh, conversation. Cool, man. Thanks for having me. I'll speak to you, you again You got soon. it. Stay safe. All right. Take All care. Right. See you, buddy. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast with Eric Schlein. If you'd like to connect with Eric for questions, comments, feedback, ideas, or to inquire about being on the show, please contact Eric at intelligentinvesting at gmail.com. So, in the words of Charlie Munger, I have nothing to add.